What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? 1-833-288-EWTN. I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. 1-833-288-3986. Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome again to Call to Communion here on EWTN. We are delighted to be with you on this Tuesday afternoon. This is a program just for you if you are a non-Catholic and you've got a question or two about the Catholic faith. Love to get those questions answered for you in this hour. Here's our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're listening to us outside of North America, we have a special phone number just for folks like you, and that is 1 and then 205 and then 271 2985. And of course, you can always send us an email, the address for that, ctc at ewtn.com. All right, Charles Beery is our producer, Matt Gabinski, our phone screener, Jeff Burson handles social media. If you want to ask a question via YouTube or Facebook, we're streaming on both platforms right here and right now. Just uh, put your question in the comments box. Jeff will see it. He'll shoot it to us here in Studio One, and we will take it from there. I'm Tom Price, along with Dr. David Anders. Tom, how are you today? Very well. How are you, my friend? Oh, I'm doing decent. Thank you. It's uh, cooler this week. and it we're, is. we're about 10 degrees cooler than we were last very week. Very so delighted to be much in. Much welcome. Yeah. You know, last week I was traveling uh, throughout the Midwest, went to St. Louis, uh, went to Gower, Missouri, where the uh, there was the uh, incorrupt body of Sister Wilhelmina. Got to participate in some uh, some beautiful masses and met a lot of nice folks. But boy, it sure was hot. That's fantastic, man. Oh man, we're going to lead off uh, with this e- this uh, voicemail. This actually came in last night on the EWTN listener comment line. Hi, Doctor Anders. Hey, this is uh, Tim from Iowa. If a person receives a kidney from Another person, how does the church view that compared to a person receiving a kidney from another species compared to receiving a kidney that is grown from a person's own stem cells? I don't think that's possible, but I'll just keep using that example. Compared to a person who is receiving a kidney from someone else's stem cells, uh, for example, a person who allows that to happen versus an aborted fetus uh, tissue. And then along with that, uh, would you mind kind of reviewing the cooperation with evil that the associated medical community is involved with in a situation like that, where the nurses and doctors are involved with helping people make decisions, uh, moral and ethical decisions about those options, um, and possibly people who are working in a business that, for example, does the stem cell tissue production, what are the levels of cooperation of, with evil that are associated with that. And then my final question is, um, I really enjoy music, and I really like the uh, music that is associated with your program. So wondering if it's available publicly, I'd really like to listen to its entire rendition if it is. All right. All right, Tom, you want to handle the music part? That's the only question here I, think I can really confidently answer. Uh, we play, as everybody knows, I think, uh, very little music uh, except for the live mass and things like that and, and uh, program intros and bumpers and 
promos and things of that sort. Uh, but we do have a production library here at EWTN. We have the rights to, to uh, use that music, and that's where that music came from. So it's not something you can buy uh, commercially or online or anything else. So uh, that's it. That's it. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, Tom. Appreciate that. So, first of all, th- there's there's no objection in Catholic theology to uh, organ transplants of any kind from any uh, providence that I know of. Uh, the The objection is to you, you can't you can't kill someone to make their organs or body parts available either for direct transplant or for or for research, right? So that's where the objection to stem cell research comes in. If people are creating embryos, they're making human beings in order to harvest their biological material for some other purpose because you're, I mean, you're instrumentalizing the human being, uh, you know, for some other end. That, that would be a gross indignity against the dignity of the human person. So that that's really where you draw the line. But no, I mean, I can give you my kidney, you can give me my kidney, um, uh, and there's no objection in principle to doing research on this or that stem cell, provided you're not creating somebody to kill them to harvest their stem cells, right? Um, now, when it comes to cooperation with evil, the Church draws the distinction between formal and material cooperation with evil. And formal cooperation with evil is when you intend the evil thing itself. And that's always wrong in every circumstance. Uh, material cooperation is when you may not intend the, the evil itself, but you are providing some kind of material that facilitates the evil. Now, that that provision can be proximate or remote, and it can be more or less uh, uh, culpable dep- depending on those circumstances. So, for example, um, you know, let's say you are manufacturing, um, uh, uh, you know, laboratory chemicals that might find their way into the production of illicit drugs in a drug laboratory, right? Well, I mean... Yeah, is that materially cooperating with evil? Sure, but you absolutely didn't intend that evil, and and beside the fact you're really, really remote from it. There's no harm, there's no guilt associated with that. Okay. Um, if the cooperation is very proximate, very up close, um, that's more problematic. So, for example, let's say you are a nurse, and you, uh, you say, well, I am personally opposed to abortion, but I've gotten a really great job, you know, at the abortion clinic down the street— and, uh, and my job is to, you know, hand over the scalpel when the abortion doctor says, pass me the scalpel nurse. Um, you can pr- protest all you like that you're personally opposed to debor- abortion, but your material cooperation is so proximate, so close, that you really are bringing about the evil outcome by your direct involvement. Sure. That's, that's not acceptable. Uh, there are cases, of course, where it's a little bit harder to draw the line and know how, how you know, how remote, how proximate in order to, to you know, justify, as it were. And, uh, and I don't know that you can always give a hard and fast answer to that question, um, uh, uh, but you can see in the extremes what the distinction is, and, and you have to kind of make a prudent judgment about how remote am I. Yeah, very good. And that handled both of those questions, correct? Yes, I think so. All right, very good. And uh, we do thank you for your call overnight on our EWTN listener comment line. If you would like to send us an email, we'll get to a couple of emails in this hour. Uh, here's the address for that, ctc at ctc 
at EWTN.com. In a moment, we'll talk with Robert in Cincinnati. We'll also get to uh, a question from Stephen on YouTube this afternoon. Phone lines are open for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Call to communion on this uh, Tuesday afternoon. Not quite as hot this week here on EWTN. Stay with us. Very glad to have you with us on this Tuesday afternoon here on EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Andrews. Our phone number and calls are coming in right now, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. You know, uh, from Rome to your home with news from EWTN's Vatican Bureau, you can watch all of the important events from Rome even if you don't have access to a TV set. Using the latest technology, we have made it possible to watch the latest news from the Holy See delivered directly to your home via our live streams. You can watch EWTN's Vatican Bureau News live on EWTN's YouTube channel. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or X if you prefer that. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN. Here is Robert in Cincinnati listening on the great Sacred Heart Radio. Hey, Robert, happy Tuesday to you. What's on your mind today, sir? Uh, good afternoon. I have uh, thought about uh, the crucifixion because it's supposed to have saved people from their sins. And I've been trying to understand the Roman Catholic view. When I called about this, Dr. Andrews said that uh, the view was that uh, God rewarded Jesus for the crucifixion with the Holy Spirit. But I thought that Jesus already had the Holy Spirit, at least since his baptism, and I don't understand how Jesus having the Holy Spirit saves people from their sins. Oh, yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So the business about rewarding uh, with the Holy Spirit, the, Christ doesn't, isn't rewarded for the crucifixion by the gift of being indwelt by the Spirit. That, that, that's a misunderstanding. Okay. Um, St. Peter says it, in his sermon at Pentecost that God exalted Christ, that he was pleased with Christ, that he rewarded Christ for his obedience uh, unto death on the cross, and that he poured out on the church, which is Christ's body, that which you now see and hear, referring to the uh, exhibit at Pentecost, people speaking in tongues and prophesying and all the rest of it. Mm. So the gift of the Holy Spirit to the church is merited by mm. Christ on behalf of his body. Okay. Robert, is that uh, helpful for you, sir? Uh, so uh, the gift of the Holy Spirit is not to Jesus, but to the Church. Right. Well, Christ merits grace and the gift of the Spirit for the sake of his Church, for the sake of his body. Robert, thanks so much for your call. That opens up a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. Looks like three lines open right now. 833 833- 288-3986. It's called a communion here on EWTN Radio. We're going now to Houston, talking with Santana, listening on the great Guadalupe Radio. Hey, Santana, what's on your mind today, sir? Hi, uh, appreciate you taking my call. Thank you. Um, um, so, I lately I've found myself uh, feeling pretty disenchanted with. I'm, I'm I'm not a Catholic, by the way. So, but I, I found myself feeling pretty disenchanted with. Just uh, some of the churches, you know, the, the, the you know the Protestant churches that I've been a part of, and um, and you know, I I, I I kind of find myself, you know, drawn to Catholic literature and whatnot, and I I, uh, I picked up a, a catechism and started reading it, and as you know, um, uh, you know, if Protestants, we we if, 
we don't see something in the Bible, it's kind of very difficult for us to embrace it. And and so I, I have a question about the magisterium, like where this idea of the magisterium comes from. Um, um, I don't I don't see it uh, explicitly in the scriptures. I mean, there might be some kind of a concept in there, you know, um, and um, that could explain it. And so I. I'm curious about that. Um, where where does the idea of the magisterium come from? Does it come from also from other sources in addition to the Bible? Or if you could just help me understand that, that would really be great. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So the idea of the magisterium, magisterium just means teaching or teaching authority. Uh, it comes to us explicitly in the teaching of Scripture and the teaching of Jesus. Um, uh, so Christ said to the apostles in Matthew 28, go into all nations and make disciples and teach them everything that I have commanded you, and I will be with you to the end of the age. And that f- final phrase, I'll be with you to the end of the age, you could trace that out of the Bible and see every time God promises to be with somebody, it's a, it's a promise of divine assistance. So Christ here has given a specific command to the eleven to teach, and that's what magisterium means, it's, a, it's an, an office of teaching, uh, with a promise of divine assistance. And he goes on to say, um, whoever hears you, hears me. Whoever rejects you, rejects me. That's Luke chapter 10. Whatever you, shall, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Matthew 16, Matthew 18. As the Father sent me, so I send you. John chapter 20. And so uh, there you have it right there. Emphatically, Christ sending out the apostles with a command to teach and a promise of divine assistance. And uh, the assurance that they act in his name, and what they do is as if Christ did it. Whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven. As the Father sends me, so I send you. So there you have the magisterium in sacred scripture. Now, uh, the apostles were very conscious of associating other people to this work. So you can read in Acts chapter 14, for example, um, they went and appointed presbyters in all the churches that they founded. They weren't voted on by popular acclaim. They were appointed directly by the apostles. The pastoral epistles, for example, you know, uh, Jesus says uh, um, uh, to Titus, for this reason I left you in Crete, so you might appoint presbyters in every town as I directed you. So Paul appoints Titus, and he directs Titus to appoint others. Um, uh, and, the, and the charge is definitely to hand on sacred teaching. So he says to Timothy, for example, um, what you heard from me through witnesses entrust to other faithful people who in turn have the ability to teach others as well. Second Timothy chapter 2. Um, for a bishop as God's steward must be able to exhort with sound doctrine or a few opponents, Titus chapter 1. So, uh, I mean, that, I don't know, to me that seems pretty darn clear that, that, that the provision that Christ made for handing on the Christian faith is in fact the teaching office of the church and this promise of divine assistance. And then you can see it lived out in real time in Acts chapter 15 when there is a question of doctrine to be determined and the apostles and teachers meet in Jerusalem in council, and they say it seems good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon the universal church, not just one congregation or another, but Christendom universally, mm-hmm. uh, the following commands. And they lay down a ruling about the Christian, the Gentile relationship to the Mosaic Code. But the, the language is significant. They didn't say, well, you know, we went back and read the book of Isaiah, and this is what Isaiah says. No, they said, this seems good to the Holy Spirit and us. This is how we're going to do it. And, of course, that ruling is understood to be authoritative and binding on the consciences of anybody that claims to be a Christian anywhere throughout the world. That's the whole idea of Catholicity. It's not just individual congregations operating independently, but one holy Catholic mm-hmm. and apostolic church throughout the world. So there it is in the Bible. Now, um, when you get into the writing of the Second Century Fathers, this is emphatically, emphatically what the early Christians who, who knew the apostles believed the apostles had, in fact, done. 
Um, so First Clement says, for example, as Christ was sent forth by God and the apostles by Christ, they, the apostles, appointed the first fruits of their labors, having first proved them by the Spirit to be bishops and deacons of those that should afterwards believe. Um, and uh, uh, so uh, Ignatius of Antioch uh, wrote to the Ephesians around, say, 100 A.D., we ought to receive everyone whom the master of the house sends to be over his household, as we would do him that sent him. And it's manifest, therefore, that we should look upon the bishops even as we would look upon the Lord himself. Um, uh, St. Irenaeus, in the fourth book of his Against Heresies, uh, connects us directly to the, to the primacy of the Bishop of Rome and says that it's a matter of necessity that all the churches throughout the world agree with this church, namely the Roman church, on account of the dignity and authority of those that founded her. So, I mean, uh, you can find this doctrine of teaching authority and apostolic succession from Scripture to the second century fathers to the third century fathers all, all down to the very day that we live in now. And, of course, the magisterium as a, as a reality, uh, like the liturgy and like tradition, predates the Bible. Right? The Bible is a witness to it. The Bible doesn't create it. Christ created the, the church with its teaching authority, and the Bible witnesses to that, but, uh, but it predates the Bible. And nowhere does Scripture point to itself as the final word for Christian faith and practice. The, the idea of sola scriptura, we should look to the Bible to substantiate all of our doctrines, is not itself a biblical idea. So even if Scripture didn't say a word about the magisterium, although it says quite a lot about it, even if it were silent on the question, that would not be determinative, because we have these truths from sacred tradition as well. In fact, they predate the writing of the Bible. Well, I mean, what do you think the, the gospel writers were referring to when they, when they tell us, I mean, St. Luke tells us explicitly, hey, I sat down to put pen to paper, figure out this Jesus thing, so I did a lot of investigation. This is what I came up with. I mean, this is, this is Luke's procedure, right? He's, he's looking to what is the antecedent oral tradition of the church and the communities, and he's recording that for posterity. Uh, that's the way the gospel authors function. They, they actually look to a pre-existent, you know, antecedent tradition, mm. and they record those things in text, but they don't write down everything. John tells us explicitly, didn't write down everything, couldn't, couldn't cover everything Jesus sure. said and did, but here are some highlights for you. But that everything there is conveyed to us by sacred tradition. Is that uh, helpful for you, Santana? Wow. Um, yeah, I really appreciate you uh, flushing that out and just... Uh, Explaining that, I mean, uh, uh, I, I, so it helps me to every, you know, when I when I come across the magisterium and the, and the catechism, it, it kind of helps me to uh, to see it through the lens of what you just shared. Sure, so I, I appreciate that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank well, you so much. I'll be, well, we'll be talking some more. I really appreciate that, Doctor. Thank you so much. Absolutely, Santana. And by the way, if you want a, a little quick refresher course on what you heard just a few moments ago, please do, do check out the podcast for today's program. You can go to EWTN.com forward slash radio, EWTN.com forward slash radio. Click on that button there, right there on the radio homepage. It says podcasts, and then scroll down a little bit. You'll see Call to Communion and today's program. Thanks so much for your call. It is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders. Our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. If you've got a question for David, or perhaps you'd like to uh, explain to us what is keeping you from becoming a Catholic, 833-288-3986. Henry's listening in Kansas, uh, watching us on YouTube this afternoon. Henry, what's on your mind today, sir? Hi there. Howdy. I have a slightly longer question okay. uh, about John chapter 6 and God's salvific will. So, I see Jesus says in verse 44 that no one can come to him unless the Father draws him, and Jesus will raise him on the last day. 
He also says in verse 37 that all the Father gives will come to him. So I see the situation where the only ones who can come are those the Father grants, and all that the Father gives will certainly come. I don't understand how this squares with the Catholic idea that all have a chance to be saved. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So, of course, Catholic commentators have wrestled with these texts for a very long time. They're very familiar to us, and there are different ways of handling the problem. But the Council of Trent lays down the parameters of what is authentically Catholic. And within those parameters, there's room for disagreement. There's room for different schools of opinion. But the parameters are as follows. No man can merit the gift of grace. Maybe a contradiction to say that you could, right? It's incoherent. No man can merit the gift of grace. No woman either, for that matter. And no one can merit the gift of final perseverance. So if you have faith, if you have grace, it's not because of anything you did. It's because God just gave it to you, right, for his own inscrutable purposes. Uh, once you've received grace, um, you don't keep it through your own good works. You keep it because God preserves you in grace. So, all right, so the church also teaches that humans are genuinely free, not therefore morally responsible, and that God offers sufficient grace to everyone uh, so that they can be saved, and that grace can be resisted. So those are those are the principles, right? You've got to hold all those points to be Catholic. Needless to say, they sit in some tension with one another, and so there are there are different ways of handling that tension. One way, the Dominican way, associated with Saint Thomas and his disciples, is to reason as follows: They say, well we can distinguish sanctifying grace into sufficient and efficacious. Now, this is a scholastic distinction. Sure. Right? It's not found in Scripture. It's the, the theologians trying to uh, parse a mystery here. They say we can distinguish sufficient grace and efficacious grace. Sufficient grace is exactly what it sounds like, grace that is sufficient to move you to eternal life. Mm -hmm. Efficacious grace is grace that in fact does so. It, it's not just sufficient, it is. it gets the job done. It really, in fact, moves you efficaciously to eternal life. And God grants a, a sufficient grace to all, uh, efficacious grace only to the elect. Why would God grant efficacious grace to some and not all, um, with all the other uh, attendant caveats? And the Dominican says, don't know God's inscrutable purposes. And you can find that opinion defended in the book Predestination by Father uh, Reginald Guirigou Lagrange, published by Tan. Uh, it's an excellent presentation of the Dominican position. Here's another view that is also allowable for Catholics. Um, God grants excuse me, God grants uh, grace to everybody, um, but He grants grace with a knowledge of how we're uh, how in our freedom we're going to cooperate with it. So he doesn't give grace because of our foreseen merits. You're not, you're not compelling God to give you grace. But he does know how you'll act if you get it. And he's able to sort of move the channels of grace in accord with his knowledge of, big word here, future counterfactuals, the what-would-have-beens of reality, right? Uh, so if you ever watch science fiction movies and you see about all these alternative, al alternate realities and, you know, you have a time travel film and... You know, somebody steps on a 
butterfly and it creates all these little branching possibilities and all these different worlds pop up. Actually, it's the Jesuits that thought that up. <laughs> uh, the, 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 the Molinists have this idea of, they invent the idea of counterfactuals and and um, uh, and like modal philosophy and possibility. It's all wrapped up in their metaphysic um, as a way of trying to guarantee human freedom, but also uh, the priority of grace and to allow for the room for some kind of intelligibility behind what would seem to be God's arbitrary choice. Um, and uh, that's also an allowable position. Um, uh, Larry Feingold of Kenrick Theological Seminary in his uh, lectures on, um, what are they titled? You can find them at the Association for Hebrew Catholics website, uh, defends that position quite ably. Appreciate your call, Henry. An excellent question there. Call to communion here on EWTN. Lines are open for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Call now. Hey, what's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why don't we talk about that here on EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders. couple of lines open at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. In a couple of moments here, we'll get to John in St. Louis. Let me answer that question or ask this question from Stephen watching us on YouTube today. And uh, Stephen says, in the hierarchy order of creation, angels are placed above humans. Is it possible, Dr. Anders, for normal humans to be placed higher than angels in heaven? Although special, seems to me that Our Lady would be an example. Yeah, thanks. Um, so we do read in the New Testament, in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, do you not know that we will judge angels? Right, so Paul does place humans in superiority over them, although the implication is that we're going to judge the fallen angels. Uh-huh. And uh, uh, we read also that angels are ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. So mm -hmm. it's not the case that every angel is superior to every human. And, of course, only humans possess the dignity of the incarnation, that it is a human nature that was assumed to the second person of the Trinity, not an angelic nature. So there's definitely something exalted about humanity that is distinct from angels. Now, we can talk about a kind of... Uh, metaphysical superiority in that angels are spiritual beings that are not subject to physical corruption in the same way that humans are. And, um, and of course, uh, the, the holy angels are confirmed in sanctifying grace, and they have their own ranks and hierarchies, and some are, you know, exist to be in the close proximity to the presence of God and to adore him all eternally, and that's something that we are not doing, and that, that's fairly elevated stuff right there. Um, but, uh, but there is definitely a sense in which humans are superior to angels, or at least some of them. Okay. Appreciate that. Thanks so much uh, for your question there via YouTube this afternoon. Let's go now to the phones and John in St. Louis listening on the EWTN app. Hey there, John. What's on your mind today, sir? Yeah. Hi. Good afternoon. Yeah, I got, uh, I guess it's maybe an odd question, but uh, 68, lifelong Catholic. And, uh, you know, I've come from the, you know, because I said so kind of Catholicism to, you know, live your life and you, you should be the example to people. And more and more these days, you run into people who have no religion or whatever. And, you know, I, I try not to get into any sort of uh, discussion because it usually doesn't go well. But one of the things that comes up a lot of times, just from kids and whatever, is, yeah, Jesus, he was a good guy. You know, he was a prophet. He was a holy man. But so was Muhammad. So was Buddha. So, you know, they, they, they lump them in. And the one thing that always kind of stuck out in my mind is the fact that 
I mean, sure, he was all of those things, but at some point along the line, his life was so important to be that uh, our whole sense of time revolves around his life. You got A, D, B, C. You know, the world keeps track of years by his life. And the one thing I, I didn't know is how, how in the world did that even start? How was time kept before him? You know, was a year always 365 days? I have no idea. I, you may not know either, but it was just something I always thought about. Yeah, sure. Thanks. I appreciate the question. So first of all, um, you, you listed a number of religious founders in your catalog there and said, well, you know, they're all good guys and Christ falls into the category of good guys who were also religious founders. I, I'd like to dispute something in that original premise, and that is that all religious founders are good guys. I think that's manifestly not the case, and I think history is replete with people who were religious founders who were narcissistic megalomaniacs, right, who were not at all good guys, and uh, and that some of the communities that they founded went on to perpetrate horrific uh, evils. And look, Catholics have done horrific evils, but they haven't done them consistent with the message and the methods of Christ, right? There are others who were much more faithful to the vision of their religious founders and have gone on to perpetrate evils in pretty strict imitation of those founders. So I, I wouldn't, I would not just naively assert that just because somebody founded a religion that that makes them a good guy. Um, secondly, the difficulty with the Christ as a good guy thesis, well, he was a good guy, that's to, that's sure. Um, but that, that really doesn't match up with Jesus' own self-understanding or his own description of himself, right? Um, even the most skeptical biblical scholars, those that reject any kind of claim for supernaturalism or any kind of claim that, you know, Christ was a divine person and even atheist biblical scholars, and I'm, I'm thinking of a few I have in mind very specifically, would tell you that whoever the man Jesus was, he clearly saw himself as more than just a rabbi. He understood himself as an eschatological, that is to say, end times figure, who was anointed by God to be a Messiah or some sort of extraordinary personage, some sort of idealized human individual who would perfectly exemplify God's message, God's person, and usher in this this kingdom of God that would be a massive transformation of uh, of, uh, of human history. So even even people that reject the account of the New Testament think that Jesus can't simply be reduced to the category of good guy. He was he was something entirely other than that. Um, and in fact, you know, C.S. Lewis's challenge was that if you reject the uh, the Catholic claims about Christ then it would be questionable whether he really was a good guy, because somebody who made the kind of claims about himself that Jesus made, uh, had the kind of self-understanding that Jesus had, um, who, you know, ended in the ignominious death of a crucifixion, one might conclude, well, he wasn't that much of a good guy. Maybe he was a deluded, uh, you know, uh, apocalypticist, right, whose, whose whole religious program ended in flames. And then you would say he was maybe not such a good guy. Maybe he was a fool. Maybe he was naive. Maybe he was an... Uh, he also was a narcissistic egotist. I mean, you could come to that conclusion if you reject the idea that he actually accomplished what he meant to and that the crucifixion and subsequent resurrection and founding of the church were, in fact, part of the divine plan. Um, so I just don't think you can get away with the good guy uh, thesis. Now, your your intuition about, well, let's look at what the kingdom that Christ inaugurated has actually brought about in human history. Let's look at the impact of Christ on the world. I think that's a very good way to go. And the fact of the matter is, is Christ did fundamentally reorder not just the Christian world, but but the world as such. Like, all of human history was touched. Even, 
uh, even the practitioners of those other religions founded by those so-called other good guys, right? And if you know something about the history of world religions, you know that it is contact with Christianity um, in the post-colonial era that brought things like the notion of human dignity, uh, human rights, uh, to to the forefront, uh, social justice, these kinds of ideas, which are deeply Christian ideas, now are typically embraced worldwide. And you'll find Hindus and Jews and Muslims and Buddhists and others that that argue for this kind of engaged humanistic approach to human rights and the you know world order. Mm-hmm. They do so because of their contact with Christianity and the influence that Christianity has had on the practice of the world religions. So uh, many of the things that we take, many of the ethical standards that we take for granted now in the modern world, and sometimes are set as if they could be in opposition to Christianity, are in fact of Christian origin. And that's uh, certainly good news. And, and, and what about the, 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 the passing of time, the passing of years? How was that done before there was Christ uh, with right, us. sure. So it really depends on the culture that you're living in. I mean, some cultures have pretty extended chronologies that they usually date from, uh, you know, some event in their own history or mythology. Uh-huh. Um, uh, you know, other other more primitive civilizations, you know, would just mark the passing of seasons and months using astrological criteria. John, great question. Thanks so much for checking in with us today here from St. Louis. It's called a communion on EWTN. Let's go now to uh, David, a first-time caller in Altoona, Iowa, listening on the great Iowa Catholic Radio. David, what's on your mind today, sir? Uh, good afternoon. I was having a nice conversation with a Protestant gentleman who's coming out of a Baptist background. He's exploring the scriptures and really seeing the importance of good works in the life of a Christian and feeding the poor, especially um, in that regard, we were having a conversation and trying to understand what the Catholic perspective is, because he's only had limited interactions with Catholics, and one, as you would say, nominal Catholic, explained to him that uh, it's a good works versus bad works kind of checklist, and which way the scale uh, falls is to the benefit. And I said, I've never heard that teaching before. That led us into further conversations about once um, once you are given the grace by God to be able to do the good works, um, it's the importance of a Christian to live those good works out in, in love with Christ. So I wonder, though we can't earn our salvation, can we, to the opposite, have a consequence for not living those good works out? Or is the argument that we were never really given the grace being in Christ to do those in the first place. Okay, thanks. Yeah, sure. So let me let me clarify one assertion that you made because it deviates a little bit from Catholic doctrine. We cannot earn grace. Well, let me rephrase. We can't earn the initial grace. We can actually earn. We can merit subsequent grace. We can merit an increasing grace, but we can't merit that initial grace. But once you have grace, you absolutely can and do merit your own salvation. 100%, 100%. So when God rewards you at the end of your life, he rewards you for deeds done with the help of grace. And he says, well done, good and faithful servant. You know, you, you fed the hungry and clothed the naked and gave drink to the, drink to the thirsty, etc. Now, you did those works because the Holy Spirit dwelt within you through the gift of grace and empowered you to do them. But it really is you doing them and God rewarding you. Christ says, you know, if you pray in secret, give alms in secret, fast in secret, your Father who sees you in secret will reward you. So you, you absolutely do merit reward from God for the good works done in grace. Now, 
um, your your friend who portrayed the Catholic doctrine of salvation as if it were a simple accounting checklist, that's wrong. That's not correct. And uh, as if, you know, God simply, um, like, uh, you know, like the Egyptian god of the dead, he, you know, weighs your heart in a feather and sees if the good works outweigh the bad, then you get in. No, that that's not how it works. That's not how it works at all. And, um, uh, and in fact, because that doesn't, that, doesn't, that doesn't allow for the possibility of forgiveness. And the example here from Scripture that's so clear is the case of St. Dismas, the good thief on the cross. I mean, the guy said of his own life, uh, you know, I'm getting what my deeds deserve. I've lived a pretty wicked life. I'm being crucified, and yeah, I kind of deserve crucifixion. But he turns to Christ for mercy and says, Have, Lord, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And Christ's response is, today you'll be with me in paradise. Well, I mean, Dismas did some good works. He made an act of humility. He made an act of faith. He, he, he embraced the justice of the verdict against him and the church tells us that that itself has expiatory value. So he did some good works. But would, would it have met the checklist standard? Certainly not. Certainly not. You know, like, see, three good works versus a lifetime of evil? No, it doesn't meet that standard. Um, but, uh, but forgiveness is a real thing, and the, the, the guilt of sin can be effaced, can be done away with, and then we're saved uh, not because of the sheer quantity of good works that you perform, but because of the presence of God in the soul, Right, like unto like, that yeah. you, you're being divinized by 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 God's very activity within you, and so mm-hmm. you're fit for the life of heaven once you have grace in your life. Now, you can lose that grace through your lack of free cooperation, and when you do cooperate, you can merit yet deeper grace, more grace, closer relationship with God, and reward in heaven. Um, but um, but that's the way it shakes out. David, thank you so much uh, for your call from Altoona, Iowa. It's called a communion here on EWTN. Hey, be sure to join us tonight for Mother Angelica Live Classics. That is at 8 p.m. Eastern on EWTN radio and television. Tonight, Mother lends her perspective on a variety of topics, focusing on the so-called odds and ends of our faith. A great, great program. Mother Angelica Live Classics tonight, 8 p.m. Eastern on EWTN radio and television. Before we go back to the phones, I want to give a little shout-out to one of our listeners, Ed, in um, uh, Toronto, watching us this afternoon on YouTube. Ed says, hey, this past weekend, it was great to finally meet my favorite EWTN host, Dr. David Anders, at the EWTN Family Celebration. Dr. Anders, you rock. We hope to bring you here to Toronto. Well, I, I, I hope we get that invitation. I would love to go to Toronto, and it was wonderful to meet everybody at the family celebration. What a great time. Oh, we had hundreds and hundreds of people here, and uh, you got to do a little meet and greet, didn't you? Uh, did a lot of meet and greet. A actually. lot of meet yeah. and greet. Fantastic. All right, back to the phones now at 833-288-EWTN. Here is Sylvia, a first-time caller from Titusville, Florida, listening on the great Divine Mercy Radio. Hello, Sylvia. What's on your mind today? This is my question. If the belief of the Eucharist is of such great importance to us as Catholics and Christians in general, how many times is it mentioned in the New Testament aside from John 6? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So the Eucharist is discussed in Matthew 26, Mark 14, Luke 22, and 1 Corinthians 10. So, and, you know, arguably, it may be alluded to in other passages, Dr. Scott Hahn has a whole book arguing that the Book of Revelation should be seen through a liturgical lens, mm, you know, i.e. Yeah. Eucharistic lens. But in terms of explicit mention, uh, the institution narratives of the Synoptic Gospels, the Gospel of John, of course, and then 
1 Corinthians 10. I, I do want to say something, however, about the criteria that you that you suggest, which is that we could measure, or would seem to measure the importance of a doctrine by the number of times it's mentioned in the Bible. And I, I don't think that's a valid criteria at all. Uh, I really don't. I, I don't see that Scripture itself makes that claim about itself. It, it, we, not, we don't, there's no, there's no principle from divine revelation that says you can hierarchically rank the centrality of a doctrine by the number of times it's mentioned in the Bible. I, I just think that's a I don't think that, that works that way. Now, the Second Vatican Council did acknowledge that there is a kind of hierarchy of truths within the Catholic tradition, but that doesn't mean that one truth is more true than another true. I mean, that's impossible. If it's true, it's just true. Sure. It's, just, it's a binary. You true, false. It's the only options there are, right? Yeah. But that, but that some truths are more central constitutively to the faith than others. So, for example, the the truth at the top of the hierarchy of truths would be the truth of the doctrine of God, that God exists, uh, that God is a trinity, that God has a certain character and a plan for salvation, uh, the truth about Christ and the incarnation, uh, the foundation of the church, and so forth. Now, where does the Eucharist rank hierarchically in that hierarchy? Well, it's clearly not at the top. It's not at the top. Um, the Eucharist has an instrumental value. The, the purpose of the Eucharist, like all the other sacraments, is to shape and form us into the image of Christ so that we can share in his sonship and his priesthood and be reconciled to the Father. So it's, there's a Trinitarian structure to it, right? But the sacraments are, they are important practically for Catholics because these are the means that God has given us, but they are not the, f- they are not the first truth of the Catholic tradition, which is ultimately ori- ordered to God himself. Sylvia, thanks so much for your call. Glad to hear from you in Titusville, Florida. We're going to go to an email here from uh, our email uh, mailbag, and this actually this actually makes my heart hurt, David. Uh, this, and I'm not going to reveal this uh, gentleman's name, uh, but he writes to us from Kansas. We'll just leave it at that. Dr. Anders, while attending Catholic school, I was molested by a teacher for five years. When I finally turned him into the principal. He assaulted me also. I left the church for a period of time because I was angry. Well, I'm still angry, but I have since returned to the church. So, I was wondering at what point does my anger at what happened and the failure to protect me becomes sinful? I don't intend anyone harm. I am more hurt and disappointed than anything else. Thank you. And again, that's from a listener in Kansas. Yeah, thanks. So, um, here's one thing I will never do. I am never going to tell you that you're in sin because of any degree of anger you have over this uh, trauma, uh, that you're not going to get that out of me. So as far as I'm concerned, and this is just my personal opinion, never, the answer to your question would be never. Um, and um, it, so look, forgiveness doesn't mean that you stop hurting doesn't mean that you know if if somebody smacks me across the face and my cheek is throbbing uh, my act of forgiveness is not going to suddenly make the cheek stop throbbing mm-hmm. um, and if you're if it's your heart that's throbbing the same thing is true I mean you still feel that rejection that pain of loss that indignity and um, and it, in fact I would suspect that you're more than likely experiencing trauma and trauma is you know, it, forgiveness is maybe an important part psychologically in trauma therapy and overcoming this kind of thing. 
Um, but, uh, but, you know, it's not something that you can affect by a simple act of the will. I mean, it's a pretty involved psychological process to, uh, to desensitize in the face of trauma, and I'm certainly not going to complicate matters by moralizing about it and laying a guilt trip on you because you've been traumatized. That's just to blame the victim, and I'm not about to do that. Um, now, I, I think from a psychological point of view, for your own peace of mind, um, you know, you may want to process this with the help of a therapist or, or, or some someone who's qualified to help you so that you can move on with your life and not live under the shadow of trauma all the time, right? Which is really debilitating, but uh, but I'm certainly not going to condemn you. And uh, my heart goes out to you, and I, I mean, that's just horrible. So I'm so sorry. Thank you so much uh, for your email. Back to the phones now. Here is uh, Dennis in Dallas. But it's not that Dallas. It's Dallas, Pennsylvania. Dennis is listening to us on JMJ Radio. Dennis, what's on your mind today, sir? Uh, uh, not too long ago, I, I opened up an email, and it listed a number of things that were considered sinful in the Bible. Now, I didn't, I didn't research it, uh, so I, I can't say it was in the, is in the Bible. But it, one thing I always knew, that it, it, it was... It's wrong to have tattoos uh, are considered uh, against our faith. But this listed uh, things such as eating a certain kind of certain kind of fish was uh, sinful. Uh, having a woman in church without a head covering, having a man in church with a head covering, and there must have been at least a dozen different things that really surprised me. Uh, are those things? Um, still uh, legit, or are they or are they considered uh, not so sinful anymore? They're not sinful at all. Period. All right, it's not a question of being less sinful. They're not sinful, and and so first of all, a, a great number of the prohibitions in Scripture come in a particular context, namely within the context of the Mosaic law mm-hmm. that governed the civil and cultic life of ancient Israel. And they have their meaning and significance only within that context. And the New Testament is extremely clear that when Gentiles become believers in Christ and join themselves to the people of God, that they are not in any way bound by the cultic and civil legislation of ancient Israel, any more than, say, someone in Germany driving on the Autobahn is uh, is constrained by uh, the speed limit in Jefferson County, Alabama, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's just compl- it's a total mm. category mistake, sure. right? Um, and the way Catholics think about morality is that the, the fundamental... Uh, ground of our morality is not the written prescriptions of Scripture, but the natural law, which are simply those rational principles that we can discern about nature from from rational consideration, rational uh, examination. So you, you look at the kind of thing that a human being is, and the good life, the moral life, is the life of habitually seeking the integral good of the human person, which can be rationally ascertained. So, you know, to take a trivial example, um, uh, you know, hitting myself in the eyeball with a hammer um, is not really good for me as a human being, as a human person. I ought not to do that, right? And and a lot of other things that are entailed by it as well. I mean, sort of fundamental to human agency is the desire to preserve myself in being, you know, so so self-destruction and murder are ruled out by that. 
um, you know, the, the inclination to, to live in society. Uh, so I have to have principles by which I can do that amicably uh, to bear offspring and raise them. So family life gets entailed in this kind of rational consideration. And then ultimately the spiritual nature of the human person that desires to know the truth about the world and its origins and meaning, purpose, and destiny. And so relationship with God gets implicated as well. But these are things that we can know rationally. And we don't, even if I didn't have the Bible, I would still know that certain things are right or wrong just because of my understanding of the, of the human person. This is what we call the natural law. And this is really what grounds uh, Catholic morality. And and if you were to summarize all the principles of the natural law into two, uh, they would be love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. There you go. Dennis, thanks so much uh, for your question today. Here's Karen in Lake Oswego, Oregon, listening on the EWTN app. Karen, we just have a few minutes here. What's on your mind today? Well, really quickly, I was lucky enough to grow up um, with the altar and altar servers and it was so reverent, and you just really, I mean, from the, my first Holy Communion on, I, I just really knew that that was Jesus' uh, body and blood. It seems today that when they've taken away the altar rail, they've taken away, some churches have completely taken away altar servers uh, and just have lay people running all around the altar and helping the priest and and stuff like that. I can see where new Catholics are, uh, where they and, don't... Uh, Karen, Karen, we got 30 seconds left. Your question? Go ahead. Uh, I what? just want to know your opinion on it. If that could be one reason why people, some Catholics, just don't get it. They don't understand it. Sure, sure, sure. So there, uh, this is, I can't do this in 30 seconds. I think there are a lot of reasons behind the loss of faith in the Eucharist. Uh, it is possible that the mode of liturgical celebration that you have mentioned, those kinds of things, may play into it. I, I do not by any means think that that is a sufficient explanation, because I've read the data, I've read the surveys, and there's a significant number of people who understand perfectly well what the Church teaches and yet rejects it anyway. And I, I think the reasons for that go much more deeply into the nature of the apostolate and, and the life of the parish and the way spirituality is lived out. I mean, I think the way pastors treat people. I mean, I think there's a, yeah. there's a host of reasons, and there's a great literature on this I've, I've kind of dug into. I'd love to talk about it at greater length maybe in another, another show, but here we are, the music's playing. We've run out of time. Yeah, Karen, call us back another time, and uh, we can certainly examine that. Uh, Greg in Connecticut, I'm sorry we couldn't get to your call. Please call us back tomorrow. We'll put you at the head of the line. Uh, Carlos had a great question on YouTube. We're going to... Uh, recount that on tomorrow's program. So, Carlos, be sure to tune in at that time. Hey, Dr. David Andrews, thank you, sir. Thank you, Tom. We do this program Monday through Friday right here on EWTN Radio, 2 p.m. Eastern, with an encore at 11 p.m. Eastern. On behalf of our fantastic team here, I'm Tom Price, along with Dr. David Anders. Hey, thanks for joining us. See you tomorrow right here on EWTN's Call to Communion. God bless. God bless.